Music, science, cosmic culture. This is the Blue Dot Podcast. Today's world is unpredictable and full of contradictions and navigating its complexities while trying to make the best decisions is far from easy. In his new book, The Joy of Science, the acclaimed physicist and Blue Dot favourite, Professor Jim Al-Khalili presents eight short lessons on how to unlock the clarity, empowerment and joy of thinking and living a little more scientifically. In this brief guide to leading a more rational life, Professor Al-Khalili invites readers to engage with the world as scientists have been trained to. The scientific method has served humankind well in its quest to see things as they really are. And underpinning the scientific method are core principles that can help us all navigate modern life more confidently. Discussing the nature of truth and uncertainty, the role of doubt, the pros and cons of simplification, the value of guarding against bias, the importance of evidence-based thinking, and more, the joy of science shows how the powerful ideas at the heart of the scientific method are deeply relevant to the complicated times we live in and the difficult choices we make. Read this book and discover the joy of science. It'll empower you to think more objectively, see through the fog of your own pre-existing beliefs, and lead a more fulfilling life. Welcome to the Blue Dot Podcast with Professor Jim Al-Khalili. Jim, welcome to the Blue Dot Podcast. Thank you very much for having me. Looking forward to chat. Jim, your latest book is The Joy of Science. The starting point is essentially the scientific method and what the world would be like if we all thought more scientifically. Jim, why do we need to think more scientifically? And what is the scientific method? First of all, to say that science itself isn't a collection of facts about the world. That's called knowledge. Science is, a, is, a, is the way or a way of gaining knowledge about the world. Um, and, and as far as I'm concerned, when we're talking about our physical universe around us, science is the most reliable way of gaining knowledge. There are lots of other ways through art and culture and literature and, 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 and discussions and contemplation and religion or whatever. But science relies on this thing called the scientific method. And that's really held us in good stead for the last well, many centuries. So the scientific method is various tricks and approaches to learning about the world that correct for our human sort of fallibility and biases and, 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 uh, and opinions that we want something to be right. That doesn't mean it's right. So the scientific method has really helped us learn about the world. And what I argue is that if we could export some of those tricks and, and, and approaches and attitudes into everyday life, we would be a lot happier. We would, we would be more empowered. We would be more confident. We'd have a better understanding of how to deal with the challenges that, you know, face us. I don't mean scientific challenges. I just mean just everyday living our lives, particularly today in the 21st century, where we are faced with so many challenges. We're coming out of a pandemic. We've got climate change to deal with. We are all bombarded with information from every direction. We don't know who to trust, what to trust, what is good information, what is misinformation. The scientific method would help us sort of find our way through, through all this complexity in everyday life. And when do you think you started thinking scientifically yourself? Well, I guess I was thinking scientifically, probably along with every other child when I was curious about the world. You know, every kid, when they ask their parents or teacher, you know, what is this? Why is that? 
can you explain such and such? That is being curious about the world. That is, in a sense, thinking scientifically at a very basic level. Um, we always say that scientists are, are the children that have never grown up. They remain curious about the world. For most people, you know, you get on with everyday life and you don't really care about the workings of the universe. But to learn the scientific method is something I would then have been trained with when I, when I studied physics at, at university. And I think it's a shame that we don't teach more of the scientific method to, uh, to school kids. I was rubbish at sciences when I was at school. So for those of us like me who don't consider ourselves to look at life scientifically, how do you change our mindset? Well, first of all, to say that thinking scientifically or, or using some of the, the, the approaches of the scientific method doesn't necessarily mean you have to be fascinated with, you know, black holes or, 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 or Higgs bosons or genetics or, I mean, just, just that that's a tiny fraction of what we would call science. Um, Certainly over the, discovered the past two years of the pandemic, many of us are, you know, many non-scientists are starting to think the way scientists would think. When you look at, when you think about how um, the virus is being transmitted, when we think about what sort of measures we should take to protect ourselves, you know, whether it's social distancing or wearing masks or back in the lockdown day, all of that is, you know, doing something to to, to have an, uh, an effect that's that's thinking scientifically i don't mean we're watching the daily briefings and and we all now know what an exponential curve is or you know <laughs> but trying to understand logically a problem and finding a way to solve it rationally that doesn't depend on your preconceived notions and biases you know try to be objective in problem solving that is thinking scientifically i think we should we can all do that so is science always right? Well, again, it depends what you mean by the scientific method, I think, is right. It's, it's, it's the best way we have of gaining knowledge. But if by science you mean, is the stuff that the scientific method allows us to discover about the world right? Well, no, of course, very often it's wrong. You know, so when we say is science, we heard in, you know, over the last two years, politicians saying following the science. It's, it's a meaningless statement. You know, is science right? Is there a truth out there about the world? I believe there is. And the scientific method helps us reach it. What we discover, our theories, our, our hypotheses, the measurements we make, may not be correct we might you know, we, we should be prepared to change our minds when we discover something new so because we're all fallible would you say that there is a point at which the scientific method should be questioned or should we always trust in what might be called scientific fact the scientific method is really there to, to it's built in to correct for our individual biases. So for, for me as a scientist, if I discover something, the new equation or a new theory, or I discover some new phenomenon in a lab, I really want to be right. I can publish a paper, I can get a new research grant, I can get promotion, my peers will think I'm a, you know, a smart chap. So I have an invested bias to want to be right. That doesn't make it right. The scientific method makes sure that that doesn't always happen, you know, because it, scientific method says other scientists have to go and repeat that experiment or that measurement or test that theory. Um, uh, it, the theory has to sort of um, follow certain criteria. It should be able to make predictions about new things we can go and, and, and measure. 
um, the theory may be incomplete and, and, and there may be a better one around the corner. So I shouldn't be so sure that it, it's right. So the scientific method corrects for our human fallibility. We as scientists are not perfect. The scientific method is the best way we have of correcting for our mistakes and biases to reach one day, we hope, the truth that's out there. I get the uh, impression that perhaps you like being wrong. I don't mind being wrong. I think that's, that's, that's the difference between scientists and, say, politicians. Scientists don't mind being wrong because that means we've learnt something new. If we all stuck to the same idea or same theory about some aspect of the world and every test we did and every experiment we did verified that that theory was correct, eh, that's sort of boring. But to discover that that was wrong means there's something new to learn about the world. And that's good and it's exciting. So scientists are trained not to be ashamed to be wrong and to admit their mistakes. We'd like not to be, but, you know, it's fine if we are. Okay. Jim, the new book then, The Joy of Science, the first chapter deals with the idea of post-truth. And you wrote the book a year into the COVID pandemic, where people were engaging with science and scientists, as you've mentioned, on a daily basis with the briefings. Was modern day politics and populism an inspiration for the book? I guess to, to a large extent, yes. I mean, I started writing the book and the idea and sort of the, the, sort of the background research I did for it was all pre-pandemic. Um, but certainly it was, uh, you know, after, for example, Donald Trump take, took over the presidency in the United States. And so there's clearly a, a concern there about post-truth politics. Um, but yes, I, I, I have been concerned for, 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 for a number of years, that, uh, amplified by social media and, and the Internet. People set, tend to value, you know, opinion over evidence uh, and... Uh, uh, you know, my truth is as good as your truth. And, and I saw somewhere on YouTube, such and such, how, you know, and it's a rise of conspiracy theories. So I was aware that, you know, we, we have to do something to tackle misinformation, disinformation and, and, and fake news. The, the, uh, the pandemic, I think, really sort of brought that into focus, particularly with, you know, people who are sort of anti-vaccination, for example, and, this, and just the spreading of, of unscientific, irrational points of view. So it became more urgent, I guess. But shouldn't the truth always be questioned or not? When is the truth ultimately the truth? Well, in science, you don't know if you've reached the truth. You know, you never know. You can never be sure. What we can say is, you know, that we have levels of confidence that a particular idea about some aspect of the world is is, is right. We talk about, for example, climate change, um, in the, I mean, not so much now, but in the past, we used to say, well, the, the, the climate change, 97% chance that it's due to human action. And that 97% number came, I guess, from a survey a few years ago in which 97% of all climatologists said that humans are changing the climate. There was a 3, 3% that, that didn't in that particular survey. So that doesn't mean it's definite. But in all likelihood, it's true. And as we as we see data and evidence coming in all the time from around the world, that really only makes us more confident. So it's levels of confidence rather than being certain that something is true. So you use an example in the book that humans have been to the moon and you say that that is true. So is that beyond doubt? And at what point can something no longer be questioned? 
I think we should always question. We could never be absolutely certain that we are right about something, but it's levels of confidence. The sun will rise tomorrow morning. Now, there may be something built into the laws of physics that says that, you know, we're recording this on the 19th of April. On the 20th of April, the sun won't rise uh, because the Earth, you know, there's some something built into the law of gravity that, I mean, it's so preposterously unlikely that we just assume it's it's not going to happen. We can't rule it out, but we we can't go around not ruling out everything. There are certain facts about the world that we have to say those are solid facts. If I, I use in the book the example, if I drop a ball from a height of five meters above the ground, it'll take one second to hit the ground. Not half a second, not two seconds, one second. And that's according to a very simple formula that goes all the way back to Galileo uh, hundreds of years ago. Um, now, Newton gave us the, the, uh, his equation of the law of gravity. Einstein gave us a new uh, picture of gravity that, that improves on Newton. There may be another theory that even improves on Einstein's theory of relativity. But the fact that the ball takes one second to hit the ground from a height of about five meters, you know, you know one, you know, as near as damn it, not two seconds. Of one second, that is a fact about how gravity behaves. And so coming back to your example, did we go to the moon? There is so much evidence that we did. There's, there's, you know, it's not simply a case of whether NASA hid, the, you know, the, the, you know, it's all sort of conspiracy and then really just they concocted it, uh, sort of some, some, some fake launch some, somewhere in America. There's so much evidence with the stuff that we've brought back from the moon. It's not just people's testimonies that it will be really difficult to explain everything else. That the, the the emissions to the moon have given us a new knowledge if we hadn't gone to the moon. So conspiracy theorists tend to focus on one aspect and say, I don't believe this happened. I believe this version of reality. And they don't care about all the other implications of what their new version of reality might might suggest. So I list facts that I say they are incontestable. But you wouldn't, I don't think, you wouldn't say that uh, conspiracy theorists' theories should be completely disregarded, should they? Or should they? Uh, no, I mean, it might be that a conspiracy theory actually is. There really is a conspiracy. <laughs> we don't know. But chances are they're not. What I do in the book is, is try and make a distinction between a conspiracy theory and a scientific theory. Uh, and the point is that a scientific theory is, is something that is refutable that you can provide evidence. If, I was, if, if, if someone provides me with evidence that Einstein's theory of relativity is wrong, well, it's, I'd, I'd really be, I'd have to test that evidence very carefully because Einstein's theory predicts so much that's right. But ask a conspiracy theorist, what would it take to change your mind about your theory? And they would have to admit nothing would. By definition, a conspiracy theorist will not accept any evidence that goes contrary to what they believe. So I don't say that all conspiracy theories are wrong. I'm just saying the, the basic idea of a conspiracy theory, that it's not refutable, that, that you will ignore any evidence to the contrary, means it's not a rational scientific theory. You paraphrase Einstein in the book. You say, we should try to make things as simple as possible, but no simpler. Now, can you explain, is that science or is that philosophy? Well, I think it's much broader than science and philosophy. I think it's just it's a, a fact of everyday life that, you know, we like to simplify 
problems and issues to make them easier to make decisions about. And, you know, and we see that in everyday life all the time, you know, in everything, you know, political opinions and ideologies and debates and arguments are simplified into, into tweets. Um, it's human nature that we like to get to the crux of a problem and make it nice and simple so that we know what, how to make decisions about it. But so much of life is not simple. It's complicated. And a lot of science is complicated. So, so in science, we've, we've learned that we would like for things to be simple. Occam's razor tells us that if you have lots of different explanations for something, chances are the simplest version is the right one. But that doesn't necessarily mean you know, that's not always the case. Sometimes things are just more complicated than we would like them to be. And we've got to sort of admit that and put in the effort to try and disentangle that complexity. I also paraphrase um, the American physicist Richard Feynman, who was asked when he won his Nobel Prize for his part in discovering a theory called uh, quantum electrodynamics. He was asked by a journalist, explain in a, in a sentence what your Nobel Prize, you, you've been awarded the Nobel Prize for. And he said, if I could explain in a sentence what my Nobel Prize was for, then it wouldn't be worth a Nobel Prize. <laughs> You know, it's sometimes things are just more difficult than we'd like or complex than we'd like them to be. But you would say that digging deeper can make our outlook clearer. You'd say that? Yeah, absolutely. I, th I think the problem is that in today's world, far too many people aren't prepared to do any digging. You know, lots of debates and, and, uh, and issues in, in, in today's world are, are turned into sort of black and white a, a polarizing opinions where each side has a very overly simplistic view of the issue and they stick to it. The nuance, the grayness is, is lost very often. And sometimes digging into a subject allows you to, to see that maybe both sides, you know, there are lots of um, issues where you, you see the arguments on Twitter um, and, and you could say, well, you know, you're right, you have a point, but you also have a point. You know, that seems to be not allowed these days. That You have to pick sides, simplify everything down to one side or the other. Uh, digging into a, a problem, appreciating that somehow it's a bit more complex than we'd like it to be, allows us to sort of stand back and get a broader view of an issue so that we don't just have to sit on one side of the fence the other. I'd like to try and establish how what you're saying could work for us day to day. For those of us that wouldn't necessarily consider ourselves to think scientifically, day to day, from waking up in the morning, what's your advice? Well, having a rational view of, of the world, of the problems that we face, of the issues that we're going to have to uh, uh, tackle on any particular day, doesn't necessarily mean being sort of cold, hard, you know, make lists and, and everyone is you know, sort of robotic in, in the way they, they tackle these issues. We don't have to be thinking about, am I, am I doing this in a very scientific way or not? I mean, no one wants to live their lives like that. But what I do suggest is that when you are making decisions, think about why you want to make that, why you think the way you do. Examine your own biases acknowledge that all of us, scientists, non-scientists, we like to hear views and opinions that agree with our own. And we've always done that, right? You know, we've, we've, we've always read a particular newspaper because it ideologically aligns with our worldview. 
Um, so it's human nature to do that. We surround ourselves with friends who think the way we do. Um, we watch the news that's, that we think is going to uh, agree with, or we follow people on social media that we already agree with. That's human nature, but that doesn't necessarily mean it's, it's the, the healthiest way of approaching problems in everyday life. We should examine why we think the way we do, what we think. Try and step back and be objective. Examine where, you know, if you look, you get up in the morning and you, you're looking on, 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 on social media, or on the internet, and you see some, uh, a, a piece of news. Well, where does that news come from? Is it something, don't immediately, ah, see, that confirms what I thought. I always knew that such and such was, was you know, so-and-so was, was a bad person or whatever. Um, we can't always be poking our noses in everywhere and doing research on, on every decision we make in everyday life, but it is important to step back and try and uh, just question whether what you think about something is right, whether it's reliable, whether there's evidence to back up what you think, and who you listen to, who, who you, you talk to, what you see on, online or on, on TV or what you read about. Are they people that, are, that you can trust? Do they have any vested interests? Are they being objective? Do they have biases? Um, why are they saying what they're saying? So those, those sorts of things, I'm, I'm making it sound like it's going to be a really you know, complicated <laughs> life that we have to lead if we all have to think in, in this way. But as scientists are trained to think objectively, and not all scientists are, are unbiased, wonderful people, right? But the scientific method, if it works properly, teaches scientists to think in, in this rational way. And I think everyone can think more rationally than they probably do. Is there a particular technique, would you say, for understanding something that we might consider incomprehensible? I think th there, there are various techniques where you can, I mean, even for me, since I wrote the book, I'm, I'm conscious of questioning, even you know, having a discussion with my wife and, uh, uh, you know, about something. And we we'll, we'll disagree on on. on some as something we've seen on the news i've started to rather than want to win an argument or, or or win points get my view across because i think i'm right i will wait and think hang on a minute am i right where do where did i read this or where, why do i think this just taking that moment to question what we think to or whether whether what it's based on is 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 thinking scientific in science you know if you come up with a theory what you have to do is test it yourself test it to breaking point assume that it's wrong right try try and find fault in your own work in your own measurement in the lab that's why we're so careful doing experiments in science because there's no good just saying no i think this is right and i'm you know i'm uh, no one can question me other scientists will will test your theory and they will find out in the end, if you're right or wrong, that the truth will out in the end. So in science, we try and sort of preempt that by testing our own ideas, theories, hypotheses, experimental measurements and so on. And, and we can do that in everyday life just automatically. Don't immediately assume you're right. If all our brains are wired differently, do you think that there could be a reason why it would be intimidating to read your book and feel scared? by the theories that you're proposing? I think there's, there's certainly still a culture, an attitude that scientists are smart people. 
that they are smarter than the rest of us. And when they say something's nice and easy and simple, well, yeah, it's all right for you to say, but I'm, I'm, I'm just a mere mortal. And, you know, what you, I mean, that may be true for something like, I know, quantum mechanics or cosmology. But again, it doesn't mean that, that the person who's the expert in that is cleverer than you. They've just spent years and years and years studying that subject. And you have to remember that science is very, very broad. Scientists' brains are wired differently from each other. There's the scientist who solves equations in physics. There's the scientist who sits on a cliff edge uh, watching birds nesting, or the scientist who climbs down into a crater of volcano to study the, 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 the rocks, or the scientist who builds computer models of the climate, or the scientist who studies human behavior during a pandemic. We are all sort of broadly using the scientific method, but we are very different in the way our brains are wired. You know, there's a lot of scientists I know who hate maths. Not every scientist has to be good at maths, for example. Yeah, I think it's more to do with the cultural perception that scientists are somehow an other type of human that they're much clever. It's all very flattering. People say, oh, you know, Jim, you're so clever. You know, <laughs> no, I'm, you know, thank you very much. But actually, I'm, I'm, I'm no cleverer than you. I'm, I'm terrible at countdown. <laughs> <laughs> you know, it's, it's, it's horses for courses. Well, I think that's very modest. Have you ever had a real eureka moment for you? Has there been a moment where something's clicked? You've understood a, a big idea? Lots, lots of times. Uh, I mean, it, very few when we're using a science, we talk about eureka moments. We talk about something that you know I have d- discovered that no one else has discovered before. You know, the scientist make, making the big discovery, and you know, I've had one or two of those, but they've been in very niche areas of of my research. You know, the, 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 there was one occasion when I learned something in, in research in nuclear physics about a particular type of atomic nucleus and and what shape and size it was. Uh, according to my calculations that matched the experimental data perfectly. And I knew something about this atomic nucleus that no one else knew. But it was sort of also, you know, who cares? <laughs> it wasn't going to lead to changing the world in any way. It wasn't going to give me a Nobel Prize in, in the offing. But in terms of discovering something new and the penny dropping and the having what, that Eureka, yeah, all the time. I remember as just as an undergraduate student being taught about um, uh, electromagnetism, so the theory of electric and magnetic fields and, and the nature of light. And it's taught to every physics student as an undergraduate. You start with a set of equations called Maxwell's equations. And the lecturer went through the lines of algebra. And so those equations, they start talking about properties of electric fields and magnetic fields. So, you know, currents and, and, and magnets and so on. And he goes through the algebra and he arrives at another equation, an algebraic equation complicated for someone who doesn't know maths but we we understood what what the different bits meant but there was in there a letter uh, a symbol and he says and there and that is the symbol that is the value of the speed of light and that proves that light is just oscillating electric and magnetic fields now i knew that that, that light is just you know these sort of waving magnetic electric fields and we'd been taught that previously but to arrive at that number the speed of light from the equations that had nothing to do with light and they had there were magnetic fields and electric fields that sent a shiver down my spine and I was an undergraduate student and I, and to the extent that my my mates in the lecture theater sitting next to me could see that I was geeking out on it and they just <laughs> took the mick but yeah so it's moments like that when profound truths about the universe and how they work when you learn about them you think, oh 
I love teaching those to my students. Even as you told that story, uh, you know, I felt a little moment myself then. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, some of it is just beautiful and is so, so profound. You know, it's you know, I I teach this to my students. There's a famous experiment. I won't go into the details, but there's a famous experiment that carried out in, in the mid 20th century by two American physicists. Um, that proved that gravity slows time down. Uh, you know, it's not just like the weight of, of the hands of a clock, stop it from ticking. No, gra- it actually makes time run slower. And, you know, you get this in science fiction and there's l- lots of sci-fi movies that have looked into this. But this was the first experiment that actually proved it. And it's such a beautiful experiment that when I explain it to my students, that oh, yeah, but maybe you think that, this could be the explanation, not this. Well, they thought of that, and what they did was this. And when I explain this, you know, you can see the, you know, the brighter students, the ones who are actually awake or who are listening to me, their eyes sort of get wider, and you can see that appreciation. I sort of imagine there's that shiver down their spine as well. So yeah, those are those are the, the wondrous, wonderful moments in science that I love. You are blowing my mind, Tim. You've appeared at Blue Dot before. What do you remember about the experience? I remember it was very muddy. <laughs> we we had a love. My wife came with me. We had a lovely time. We met up with some friends who who live near um, Jodrell Bank in, in Macclesfield, and uh, we had we were glamping. So we had this very nice tent with a with a, with proper bed, but it was muddy, and you just had to, as you do very often with festivals, you just have to live with it and and go with the flow. Um, but it was fantastic. And um, for the highlight for me was that I'd given a talk in the, in the, the, the science tent, the speaker's tent, uh, from very, quite large, a thousand people, something like that, audience. And then the organiser said, there's a slot on the main stage, the music stage. Do you want to give a talk? And I, I, I'll think of something to talk about. And so I, so I talked about a discovery of, of you know, the, the then newly discovered image of a black hole in a distant galaxy. And I talked about how big that black hole was and what its properties were and so on. But what was lovely, it was early afternoon and it had been raining all morning that day. And so everyone was in the bars sort of taking shelter. There wasn't much happening on the main stage. And about an hour before my talk, the sun came out and everyone started crowding back to the stage. And so I think I was the next the second or third act on after they all turned up. So I had a huge crowd of people who, those are the people who turned up for the music, not the science, I would imagine. And there they were, me telling them all about black holes. So I've got on my, on my homepage of my website, a photo of me f- taken by my wife backstage, of me standing, delivering <laughs> this lovely lecture on black holes to people who turned up to hear some music. And I think it went down quite well. Love to do that again. The rock star professor. What can we expect from you this year at Blue Dot then? Well, I'm going to be talking about my new book about the joy of science. I'm also hoping they've made no promises, but they've hinted it might be possible that I might get a slot on the main stage. Now, what I will talk about, I'm not sure. I'm going to find something profound in, in physics. I talked about black holes, so the very the cosmic, the very large. I think this time I might talk about the very the microscopic, the quantum world. The weirdness of the quantum world, I think, is something that will go down very well at Blue Dot. It'll be quite something under the awe-inspiring Lovell telescope there at Jodrell Bank. We can't wait to have you back there. Jim, the new book is The Joy of Science. It's fantastic. In a line, 
Can you define the joy of science? It's a celebration of why I'm in love with science and the way we learn about the world through science. And I think it's something I really feel I have to share with as many people as possible. Jim, thank you so, so much. My pleasure. You've been listening to the Blue Dot podcast. Thanks to Jim Al-Khalili. Visit discovertheblue.com to enjoy more episodes of the Blue Dot podcast and explore our lineup. Blue Dot returns to Cheshire's iconic Jodrell Bank this July with weekend, day and VIP tickets on sale now. Listener.